I know you think that we pastors just read the Bible cover to cover at least once a month, but we really honestly don't, okay? Um, actually, I'm doing just the opposite. Like I told some of you, I'm going through a read through the Bible in five years. I really am. Read through the Bible in five years. Now, you're nodding at me, so I'm going to ask you, do you have any idea how much I have to read every day to read through the whole Bible in five years? Take a guess. How much do I need to read every day to read through the whole Bible in five years? What do you think? One chapter, five chapters, 18 chapters. Any idea? Any guess? 17 verses. 17 verses every day. And so every day, I read 17 verses. I I started that on October the 1st. Today, I was in Genesis chapter 34, November the 27th. And, um, but it, gives, it, it helps you stop and think about Jacob praying and saying, this, this supplanter saying, Father, I'm scared of my brother. I'm scared of Esau. You know. So in the process of that, just like all of you, there are some passages in some sections of the Bible we read a whole lot more than others. And one of the ones that I just haven't read a lot are First and Second Peter. I mean, I've read them, but not a lot. Probably about like you. You've probably not read it a lot. Not like Romans or the Gospels or, you know, the Psalms or something like that. And so it's been a lot of fun for me these last three months to have walked together with you through the book of First and Second Peter. I've had our little boat up here and our life rafts up here to remind us. And I was talking to my class this morning about that. You know, can you imagine? What do you think a, a first century fisherman looked like? Think he was a wimpy little guy like me? Probably not. He looked like some of those Belgians that I met in, in Tanzania. Have you ever met a Belgian? Belgians know for having big, huge barrel chests. They're kind of short, most Belgians are, especially the, the men. But they have these big, because they, they're used to, for generations of pulling in nets, you know, and they work all night. And so here is this big fisherman, Peter, who now is old and grizzled and gray, but I bet you he still had that barrel chest, don't you think? And those arms still kind of showed some of the muscle tone that he had had when he was a young man. And here Peter had been humbled and had served and had taught and had led. And now he was coming close to his death. And he could see things happening. He could see persecution. He talked about it in his first letter. He could see these false teachers creeping in and talked about it in the second letter. We talked about that last week. And by the way, thank you so much for letting me do what I hardly ever do with you, and that's have you watch me on a recording I made just for you so that I could be with the Beacon Crowd and talk to them about church membership. Because as much as you need to hear about church membership, they needed it just as much, if not even more, because many of them are younger, don't have the same background in church membership that a lot of you do. But anyway, he knew those false teachers were coming, but he also knew that his time was short, and he wasn't sure how much more time he would have to be able to influence them. And so he writes the second letter. And last week we heard what he said about those people, spots and blemishes, he called them, troublemakers. And today we come to the end of the book. And next Sunday morning, we move into Joshua. We're going to wind ourselves back a couple of thousand years, and we're going to talk about Joshua. So be ready for that. Some of you maybe have even seen the play. I have never seen it. I have read it. Um, very famous play by William Beckett called Waiting for Godot. Some people say Godot. I've heard it said pronounced Godot. It doesn't really matter. It's a French name, so who speaks French anyway? But um, Waiting for Godot. And it's one of the most unusual plays you will ever watch because when the curtain opens, instead of this wonderful stage all decorated, you have a tree 
and a park bench. That's it. The whole play. A tree and a park bench and two men. Two others come on the scene over the course of the show, but basically two men sitting there waiting for someone named Godot to show up. And does anybody know what happens when he shows up? He doesn't. He never shows up. The entire play, two and a half hours worth of play, he never shows up. And so as one writer said about the play, he said, it's really not a play about someone coming. It's a play about waiting. And how do we wait? How do we fill time while we are waiting? And what is so interesting about the, about the play is, toward the end, they, they've gone through frustration, they've gone through doubt, they've gone through fear, they've gone through all these things because they keep knowing that God is supposed to show up, he doesn't come, he doesn't appear, and finally, at the end of it, one of them says, I think we probably just ought to go home. And they said, what are we going to do then? Well, we'll come back tomorrow. What are we going to do tomorrow? Well, we'll just keep waiting. Well, he, but he didn't show up. Well, maybe he'll show up tomorrow. Then the other one says, well, I guess we just better go home. But they just keep sitting there. And when the curtain closes, they're sitting in the exact same spot that they were in two and a half hours earlier when the show started. Still waiting for God. There's a lot of us that live our lives like that every day. Waiting for big God to come and take us home. Waiting for God to appear. This God that was promised 2,000 years ago. This one who you saw go into heaven will in like manner come back as you have seen him go into heaven. And for centuries, for millennia, we've heard pastors and preachers talk about the imminent return of Christ. But just like in the play, in Beckett's play, we continue to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait wait and some of us while we're waiting we kill time and some of us while we're waiting we fill time but Peter today talks about what do you do while you are waiting because these false teachers already just 30 years after the ascension 30 years after the resurrection of Christ are already saying well you understand the return of Christ is just a metaphor it's just an analogy it's not real he's not really coming back come on nobody ever comes back you die and you go and Jesus somehow or another had this resurrection thing, but he's still left and he's never coming back. So it doesn't really matter what you do. If you're saved, you're going to heaven anyway. Didn't Paul say that? That we're sealed? Didn't Jesus himself say, no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand? So go and do whatever you want to do. You might as well live whatever life you want while you're here. Then when you get there, you can live a life for there. Peter's saying, no. No. And if you were in Bible study this morning, you spent some time in this passage. And I'm going to focus on the last half. I don't know about your class, but we spent a lot of time talking about the first half of the passage, verses 3 to about 9 or 10. And then we kind of jumped through 11 to 13 and 17 and 18. And we're going to take a little more time this morning and talk through that a little more seriously. But in this passage, in these verses, I believe that Peter gives us really kind of four things. And I'm not normally good at alliteration. I don't do it to be cute. Some of you say, I like having words I can write down because then I can remember. So let me tell you what the four words are. First of all, we're going to learn about what God's purposes are for us while we're waiting. Then we're going to learn about what God's promises are to us while we're waiting. We're going to learn about God's patience toward us in our waiting. And then God's prescription for us until our waiting is over. Purposes, promises, patience, and prescription. That's what happens when I take too many days off from the office and have too much time to think. I come up with alliterations. So, 
So let's begin. While we are waiting, Peter tells us three things that God wants us to do, three purposes that God has. And we find them in verses 11 through 14. So let's start right there. In verse 11, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. Now, for those of you that weren't in Bible study this morning, Peter has just been talking about the fact there's going to come a day when, when Christ returns, everything that we know of our existence will change. Some people believe it will be destroyed and remade. Some believe it will be cleansed. Really, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is it's not going to be what we have now, okay? Paul talks a little bit about it. Most of the other writers, when they talk about the return of Christ, don't say much about the creation until you get to Revelation chapter 21. But... Peter does. And so he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait. So the first purpose God has for us while we are here is that we should live holy, godly lives. He wants us to live in holiness and godliness. Now, it's really interesting. I'm not a Greek scholar. I I read what people I trust tell me. These two words, holiness and godliness, you know in the English we call them statives. They're conditioned. Holiness is a condition. Godliness is a condition or a state of being. It, is, it can only be in the singular. But in the Greek language, it was a plural. So literally it says, in all holinesses and godlinesses. That's kind of even hard to say. So what do you think Peter meant by that? He didn't mean there's more than one kind of holiness or more than one kind of godliness. He means in every way, in everything, in every action that you do, your lives should exhibit holiness and godliness. Holiness. We know what holiness is. Holiness is being set apart. God is holy. He is totally other than us. We are to be a holy people. We are to be set apart for God. Not only set apart from the world in terms of being around the world, but set apart in the way we act from the world. And so it lives itself out in the way that we are growing in in, in our holiness, the way we're growing in our sanctification, the way we're making godly choices, the way we're presenting ourselves to the world. And so in our acts of holiness, and our acts of godliness, being and reflecting the character of God, God's love, God's patience, God's mercy, God's kindness, God's honesty, God's justice, we reflect that character. I, I love the fact, and I've got to sit down and say this. Did you know... How many times in the Bible it tells us that we should draw charts and graphs and maps so we can figure out when Jesus is coming back? How many times does it say that? None. Not one time is it ever said, I'm giving you this information so you can sit down with a piece of paper and see if you can draw this thing out and figure out when I'm going to come back. Every time in Scripture when it talks about the return of Christ, it always has to do with how we should behave ourselves while we're here. And Second Peter is a classic example of that. Poor Ryan. Ryan, I forgot you were taping this. He's moving the camera. Where's Pastor Steve going now? Okay. I'll try to stay behind the pulpit here again in a second. But Peter says, knowing the fact that Christ will return, go climb a mountain and sit and wait for him. No. Knowing the fact that Christ is going to return, watch for these signs and see when they come. And when three of them align on the same day, that means I'm coming. No. He says, listen, since Christ is going to return, you need to live a holy, godly life today eschatology, the fancy word for the doctrine about the return of Christ, eschatology and ethics always go together in Scripture. And we do a terrible, no, we do worse than that. We sin against God when we do not keep those things tied together. So what in the Sam Hill 
does the return of Christ have to do with the way we live our lives? Well, it depends on what you believe about the return of Christ. Let me say that a little bit slower. It all depends on what you believe about the return of Christ. Peter says when Christ returns, we will give an account, and then we will move into eternity to enjoy a life with him. And so while we are here, before we get there, we should begin now practicing what life there was going to look like. You think you're going to be unholy in eternity? You think you're going to be ungodly in eternity? Of course you're not. So start practicing now. Make godly choices. Make holy choices. Second thing he says he wants us to do is down in verse 14. I'm going to skip down just for a second, and then we'll come back. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found at peace with him without spot or blemish. Some have the spot or blemish first and at peace with him. I love the fact that that word, when it says make every effort to be found, to be found is not the word that comes from the opposite of being lost. You mean there's more than one meaning of the word find? Sure there is. You go to court. A guy hits you because he ran a red light, but he says you ran the red light. And he's suing you. And at the end of the trial, you and the other person stand up. Let's say he's the complainant and you're the defendant. And the judge will look at you and say, I find the defendant not guilty. It's a finding, a discovery. It is a judicial term. And in the Greek, it was a very specific courtroom term. He says, when you stand before God, I want the judge of all the earth to look at you and say, I find you innocent. And not just by your eternal salvation. We're all innocent because Christ took the penalty. But in how we lived our lives. He says, I want you to be at peace with him. Spotless. Without blemish. Spotless. Without blemish. What does that make you think of? Spotless. Without blemish. What had to be spotless in the Bible? What had to be without blemish in the Bible? The sacrifice. Christ himself, remember in Revelation? Look, the lamb without spot or blemish. And he says, that's the way I want you to be found. There's only one way you can be found that way, and that's you're in Christ. And you're walking with him in obedience. And so Peter says, listen, while you're waiting, while you're waiting for the return of Christ, whether it's through death or whether Christ's bodily return, while you're waiting, make sure that when it happens, you will be found by the great judge to be without spot or blemish. Just the opposite of those people back in chapter 2. Remember last week? He called them. They are spots. They are blemishes on the face of the earth. But not you. Third thing, jump back up to verse 12. He says, as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God. Now, this earnestly desire is an interesting phrase. In my copy of the Holman, there's a footnote. My footnote is letter D. And letter D says, or and speed the coming. Some of you have New American Standard. I'm not sure what the NIV says. Some of you have the King Jimmy or some other translations. But the word can mean either one. I kind of like speed up or hasten. As you hasten the day of God. And you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Pastor. How can anything I do hasten Christ's return? Well, did Jesus not say that the gospel will be preached to every nation and then the end will come? Well, if the gospel hadn't been preached to all nations, you wonder why Christ hadn't returned, have, do you? 
Let's get our fannies busy and get out there and tell the nation. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say fanny in church. Let's get ourselves busy and get out there and tell the nations. Because when the nations are told, then Christ will return. Now, does God know when that day will happen? It was exactly the second when that will happen. You see, that is that, that odd thing. And we will probably spend the next 10 years of my pastorate with you, if God will let me stay that long, un- trying our best to wrap our minds around the sovereignty of God and his selection and the role that we play in obedience to him. You see, God knows what our, when our obedience will fulfill his requirements. So he knows that. And so he has sovereignly chosen that when that obedience is completed, he will send his son back. But we don't know. Our task on this side of it is to work as hard as we can and to continue to draw people to repentance so that it makes that time that much sooner from our perspective. And from God's perspective, it'll happen exactly when he plans for it to happen. But while we're waiting, we can be busy doing the work of the Great Commission so that, just like our friend Olympia Washington. You watched Olympia this morning? Saw Olympia Washington this morning? Good. Great church plant. Long video, but a great church plant. We need to be praying for it. Matter of fact, his email address is on your prayer cards today. Those are God's purposes. Holiness and godliness, purity and peace, and hastening the coming of Christ. Now, what are his promises in the midst of that? Look at verse, the second half of verse 12 and verse 13. We'll see what God promises. It says, the heavens will be on fire and be dissolved because of it. The elements will melt with the heat. But based on his promise, what are we waiting for? We wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Anybody wishing for a world where righteousness dwells? Where righteousness rules? Anybody looking forward to the day where there will be no more war? either on a worldwide scale or me and my neighbor or me and my spouse or me and my kids? Are we looking forward to a day when righteousness, when the lion and the lamb will lie down together? I often use that example of my brother. I love my brother dearly. My younger brother is the lion in our family, and I'm the lamb. I'm saying, Stuart, I just can't wait to the time when when the lion and the lamb will be able to lie down together because sometimes we get crossways with each other. He'll get so mad at me. Anyway, that's just the way things go. But this is the promise The promise is that God, while we are waiting, he promises that not only will he cleanse this world of the sin that has entangled it and and gotten it out of sync with the way he originally intended it to be, but he also will create this new world where righteousness will dwell. And beloved, this is not a hard concept. And And if I'm preaching to the choir, forgive me. Choir, forgive me. But you need to understand, God created the world like this. We messed it up and made it like this. And we're walking through this mess. But the day will come that those of us who have put our trust in his promise will pass through that mess and will come back to a world that was originally the way he wanted it to be. It's not that hard to understand. It's not some great cataclysmic chart with arrows up and down and arches and all this kind of stuff. It's just, look, we walk through this world with all the sinfulness that's in it, trying our best to get ourselves ready for the, for the, for the, for the next chapter. And then when Christ returns, everything will be made the way God intended, and we will step into it, and you'll still be the best Deb Matthews. You're going to be paintings. You're going to paint like you've never painted in your life. They're, because you know what? You're not, it's, it's, you won't ever think, oh, this doesn't look all that nice. Everything will be crowned with God's blessing and glory. And you're going to, I don't know if we have cars, but you're going to work on something, Nick. I'm not sure. You'll find something you can tinker on, I'm sure, out there. You know, Every one of us will do the things that we love, and we'll do it to God's glory and to Christ's honor, and it will be a wonderful time together. Millions and millions of us on this planet together. But Peter also reminds us that while we wait and while he is working out his promise and while he is asking us to fulfill his purposes for us, he is also patiently waiting. Look at verses 15 and 16. 
regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation. Now, I've got to stop right here because it is so simple and so easy. Just put on our Baptist self-righteousness and go, oh, well, that's not about lost people. God just is waiting so that all the lost people can get saved. You know what? You're right. He is. But you know what? I'm still being saved. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But now you're doing it again to us. Now, don't, don't do us this way. We know that our salvation is past. There was a time when we surrendered our lives to Christ, admitted the fact we could not save ourselves, asked him to save us, and at that moment, we were adopted into his family. But from that point until now, I'm still learning what it means. I am still being saved from my sinfulness. And there will come a time when I will be glorified and I will no longer sin and I will be completely saved. That's why we talk about the perseverance of the saints as we walk through this process. And so Peter says, and this is what I love, but this is why you need to see how beautiful this is. It's not just God is waiting for your neighbor to finally come to Christ so that Christ can return. He says, no, I want to give you time to get ready. You still have work to do. You're not ready to come into my presence yet. And if you're 97 years old, you're going, why didn't he just call me home? Because you're not ready yet. It's not because he's not ready yet. It's because you're not ready yet. So get yourself ready. And we all need to do that. His patience is so that he can work with us and mold us and shape us into the people he wants us to be. And the minute he gets us where he wants us and the way he wants us to be, he'll go, now, now, Frank, come on, let's go home. Now, in Frank's case, maybe there were others that had to be shaped. I don't know. I don't have the mind of God. But I know that God is infinitely wise and he can never make a mistake. And so God is patient with us as well as with those that he is calling to himself. Lastly, you know it's bad news when I have to turn the 3 by 5 card over. God's prescription for us. And this is verses 17 and 18. I almost didn't do this part, and I thought, no, I can't leave it out because this is the last sermon. I just want to make sure I include it. God's prescription is that we need to understand that we have to do two things. One is a negative statement. One is a positive statement. He says in verse 17, Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, in other words, you know all these things I've told you, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stability. Look, you are building a good foundation. You need to be on your guard all the time. Beloved, you should never trust me completely. I am a sinner. Now, you should, in humble faith in God, trust me as best you can as a sinner that he has chosen to lead us in this chapter of our life as a church family. But this may, my chapter may be 10 more years, it may be 10 more minutes. I don't know, and neither do you. But don't ever trust me as me. Remember, I'm a sinner. And if I say something from the pulpit that you question, go back and search the Scriptures. Come to me and let's talk about it. You need to always be a Berean. You need to always be searching by the Holy Spirit's strength. What is the truth? Don't let Joyce Myers trick you. Don't let, well, I better not start naming names. Don't let other people trick you. I'll just stop right there. I shouldn't even mention Ms. Myers. I'm sorry. Don't let other people trick you. You'll lose your footing, and you could fall. Now, I mean you'll lose your salvation, but you could get yourself so wrapped up in stuff. I'm working with a young lady right now. She is so wrapped up in so much heresy, and she is so bound. I, I believe she's a believer. I really do, and i got to believe that sooner or later, the Holy Spirit is going to bore his way through all of that stuff that she got from this crazy, weird, dream center, church of God in Christ for the new millennium, whatever it is, and she will come to the truth. 
don't let that happen to you. And then on the positive side, he says, but, verse 18, grow. Grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I'm, I'm reading that the way I believe Peter intended it. We're not absolutely sure. Some people believe it's the grace of the Lord Jesus and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. But I kind of feel like that the grace, we grow in grace. So how do you grow in grace? I thought grace is what saved you. It is, but grace is also what keeps you. You know, I've told you this before, and I wish Sharon were sitting right here so she could nod. But I was like a lot of you men. When I married my wife, I really just traded one woman for another. And the same way I had treated my mom all those years, I started the first 10 years of my marriage treating Sharon. If I did something I was afraid she'd be mad, I wouldn't tell her about it. Because you know what happens if you tell mama? You'd be in trouble. So I wouldn't tell Sharon. And finally one day she said, look, I am not your mother. We are partners. We are equal partners. You must tell me because we can't do anything about it if you won't tell me. Stop hiding from me. And so I did. She said, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, but then once we got all that taken care of, we got all the hoo-ha out of the way, we've had a great marriage the last... 25 years, but the first 10 years, I, no, I'm just telling you, I, maybe none of you guys had that happen to you, but you see, Paul, uh, Peter says, look, you, you received the salvation of, the grace of salvation, but now you need to grow in that and learn what it means that God loves you unconditionally. You don't have to run from him, you can run to him. There's some of us who've been Christians for 70 years, and we still run from God when we sin. Why? The sin's already been paid for. Why not run to him and say, help me, Father, in this sin? And then grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He started the letter with that. He's finishing the letter with that. The way that we grow spiritually is by coming to know Christ intimately and personally and passionately. And when we do that with him, we can say, to him, Jesus, be the glory now and to the day of eternity. So, beloved, let me ask you, what are you doing while you're waiting? Now, senior adults, this is not a question just to you. This is a question to all of us. You're 35 or you're 55, and you get up every day and you go to work. You come home, you fuss about your boss, you fuss about your job. You look around your house and you wish it were bigger or smaller or nicer. Or You look at your neighborhood and you wish it was different. What are you doing while you're waiting? Are you letting Christ form you? Are you letting God shape you in godliness and in holiness and in peace and in purity? Are you hastening the coming of Christ by being out there living an example around the people that you're with in your circle of influence? What are you doing while you're waiting? Some of us get so caught up looking at the temporal. I used the example this morning, and I'm going to close with this as we pray. And you've heard me use the example before, so please forgive me if I just remind you of it. About the races in the first century, in the, old, in the, in the New Testament days. There was no starting line. There was no finished tape at the end. There was a bunch of people, a bunch, usually a bunch of men, stripped down to nothing but their little loincloths, okay? They were all there together, and they were ready. And way off in the distance, depending on how long the race was, way off, there was a, there was a pole that had been driven into the ground, a stake. It could be 8 feet high. It could be 15 feet high if it's far enough away so you could see it. And when they hollered go, everybody just ran as fast as they could toward that pole. 
You tried not to judge your best to keep your eye on the pole so you'd run straight to it. You get right to where you need to be. You didn't get yourself bogged down on what was going on around you or who this was or who that was or why that guy's in front of you or how can I get in front of him or why is he behind me? What do we need to do? How do I get out of this crowd? How can I get off to the side? You just ran. You ran. And as long as you stayed focused, you could pull the energy up from within you. And that's why in Hebrews, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. You know why? Jesus has already finished the race. He's standing at the pole, and he's waving at you with a big flag. Hey, here I am. Come on. Get over here. Focus on me. Don't focus on the other stuff. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace while you're waiting don't just wait for heaven's sakes don't kill time but don't even just fill time make the time worthy make it useful grow learn continue to walk close to christ until you get to the finish line and he says welcome home this is the word of the lord Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, many of us in this room have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ. Many of us yielded our own will to yours. We accepted what Christ did for us on the cross. Your Holy Spirit dwells in us. But to be perfectly honest, for many of us, from that day till this, our growth has been minimal at best. Oh, we've grown some. We don't make the same mistakes we did, but we have not really truly become strong, powerful, mature believers. We've just been killing time or filling time. One more Bible study group that filled us with head knowledge but no heart commitment. One more video series. One more mission trip where we spent about an hour doing mission work and the rest of the time enjoying the beach or the mountains the shows and Peter reminds us that while we're waiting you have purposes for us to be holy and godly and pure and at peace and hastening the coming of your son by what we do for you and for your kingdom so father whether we are 22 or 92 in this room may we say may we commit today to say I will not waste one more minute of my life. I want to stand before the judge of all the universe someday and be found worthy. Not in my own merit, but in the merit of Christ as it lives out in me and I surrender my life to him. Never let us fall into the meritorious worthiness of our own effort. But through Christ, may we be found without spot or blemish. And may we work till Jesus comes and then be gathered home. For it's in his name and to his glory we pray.